Welcome to Vibe Talk Awaken. I'm your host, Vibe Queen. On the show, we will get to know artists, entrepreneurs, and coaches living life in their truth after experiencing an awakening. We'll talk about their journey, wisdom, and any tools they've learned along their path. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Vibe Talk Awaken. I am your host, Vibe Queen. And this week, I'm super excited because we have a guest on the show who has read a book that was responsible for my own awakening as well. So I'm so excited to welcome Ryan Astheimer to the show. Before we start our conversation, I just want to share his bio. So Ryan had an awakening in 2012, thanks to Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now. At first, it was just a glimpse of freedom from his ego and suffering. He's then spent about five years going through the integration process of fluctuating between deep peace and turbulent ego. His work is rooted in his own moment-to-moment practice, and he dedicates all of his work to being of service to the collective awakening. As Ryan says, I am not 100% enlightened, but I am fairly close. (laughs) Pretty cool. Welcome to the show. How are you feeling? Feeling good. Grateful to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. So every episode starts the same, and uh, that's really to honor the title of the show, Vibe Talk Awaken. So what started your awakening journey? Suffering. It was suffering uh, was the beginning. And yeah, like you mentioned, 2012 was, was I think, the year, which is funny because I, you know, I remember thinking like the Mayan calendar, oh, 2012, the world's going to end. And my world actually did. Uh, gratefully, the, the world didn't end but mine did. (laughs) And yeah, I was just in a really heavy, low place. And I was deeply desperate uh, for some answers or something, some kind of reprieve from it. And so then I, my, my mother actually was the one that gave me the power of now. She had heard it from Oprah. Thank goodness for Oprah. And yeah, I read the book. It's funny when I first held the book, I remember like actually fearing it. Something didn't like it, which you know, I now I see was my ego was fearing huh. it. But I didn't like Eckhart at first, and, but I I was so I so needed an answer, and so I started reading, and then it just started really making sense and really clicking. I remember specifically I was reading the book, and he's talking about the voice in the head, and I'm hearing. <laughs> my voice in my head reading the words and i, and I think right. that might have been like one of those that fundamental the... pieces yeah just the oh wait what oh there is a voice in my head reading these words right now what is this that was like one of the glimpses but i think with that too as i was reading the book i don't know it, like for one there were these moments of feeling just tremendous forgiveness i remember that was one of the big pieces i had this huge like natural feeling of love of forgiveness of all the people in my past that had done something unconscious it was like i could suddenly see truly that's just where they were at like they couldn't have done any differently and i remember feeling so relieved from that and happy and confused that i was happy (laughs) and so yeah that was one of the big things that stuck out the other thing was starting to really hear everything that was going on in my head and becoming much more in tune with my emotions too. I also had a real disconnect with my emotions at that time. That's been part of this whole journey. It's just getting more and more in tune with my emotions in the present moment. So yeah, those things. And then that kind of just ignited it. I From there, it was like, I got the taste. There was still so much work to be done. And I also, it felt like an adventure. It felt like I had found the the treasure map. I still had to go on the quest though. And so I, from there, I personally too, I didn't really, 
I grew up in Christian, like a fundamental Christian, you know, way, and I was really turned off by it by the time I was in my early twenties, and uh, or just religion in, as a whole. And, and so, like, I had this desire to seek the truth, but also to avoid religion. And but that, you know, I did end up healing a lot of that and in, in finding different teachers that represent different religions that I resonate with, like Thich Nhat Hanh and Ram Das, and I started t- studying like lots of the spiritual texts different religious spiritual texts and just trusting my own intuition rather than depending on someone else to tell me what it means. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just been a wild roller coaster and a lot of healing, a lot of calling out my ego, calling out my reactivity and all of this stuff. And I remember even too, when it, when it first happened, I was working in a restaurant. I was a kitchen manager at a pizza place. And it was funny because like, it's just, when, it, when it, the shift happened, I started I used, to, I used to get so stressed. And now I, say, I was really starting to say, wait a minute, let me enjoy life. Why do I like wait for vacations once every four weeks or six weeks to feel, to really enjoy life for a couple of days or for a week and then go back into things I don't like? That was one of the big epiphanies. And But also what was really important and just bringing in is that like I realized this idea of like spiritual practice was something I could bring into my work, even as working in kitchens, fast paced, chaos, mm-hmm. heat and fire and all this stuff and employees. But I was like, oh, this is where my dojo is. And I just started approaching it that way. Like wherever I am is where I am supposed to be practicing. And so it just went into lots of different things. And I worked in lots of different jobs too, like not fun or fancy jobs, but like just tough work. But when I made it all my practice, it was all incredibly fulfilling because it was like, it was pulling out all these bits of ego in me. And so it's been a journey. (laughs) Wow. You just totally hit me. (laughs) Like literally six minutes in, wherever I am, that's where I'm practicing. That is just so profound to me because that's like a complete mind shift because you can then look at every single situation as, oh, this is an opportunity for me to practice. Exactly. It just changes the game because then an obstacle or a trigger is almost fun. It's a challenge. Oh, okay, let's unpack this. What's coming up now? That's so interesting. Wow. Podcast. Now it's right now it's podcast. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Interview's done. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's so amazing. And how, how beautiful that it was your mom that gave you that book. That's so interesting. What, what was it specifically that turned you off from a religion in your twenties? Was there just always a sense of like you were skeptical or what was it exactly? So when I was a kid, my parents went through these like different spiritual cycles almost like i remember there was a point where my mom was into like buddhism and was very spiritually open-minded wow okay yeah but then i don't know at some point both my mom and dad they were separate but they both got really into christianity uh, into baptist christianity which has a lot of fear a lot of and a lot of judgment and hypocrisy in it and i remember just sitting there as a kid like listening to the preacher and going on about things and there were times when i agreed with the message and there were a lot of times i didn't agree and I was like, that doesn't feel right. But then I had all this fear coming in, like, oh, I'm not supposed to question things. You're not supposed to disagree with the pastor. Who are you to? I'm 11 years old. So that kind of stuff happened a lot when I was younger. And there was this inner conflict happening with all that. And But then when I got into my late teens, I just rebelled against it and was like, ah, screw it all. And getting more into the party side of, of things and whatever. But yeah, I think one of the main things, though, is just like the fear aspect that's mm-hmm. usually heavy within religion. And the other thing that really stings me, still does, is when I hear someone say that their way is the only way, that their path is the highest yes. path. It's just like, no. <laughs> yeah. 
but that's like the ultimate being in your ego in a way. Mm-hmm. So that's quite fascinating, especially when you see it in spirituality. So yeah, I always I kind of laugh because I definitely went through that myself mm-hmm. uh, of thinking like, oh, I found the way. So yeah. let me yeah. share that with everyone. It's interesting. What are your parents like now? Are they still in their Christian beliefs? Or has the power of now affected your mom? Or I'm curious. Yeah. Gratefully, it's funny when she first gave me the book, she said, I don't really understand him very much, but I feel like he's going to help you. So so it did. And then over these years, she's gone really gone deeper into her, her awakened awakening as well with A Course in Miracles. And she's like, it's funny nowadays, she's like this hippie, like a free will, free flowing super colorful oh, probably that's people, so great. <laughs> yeah i love it but it's she's that one of the, the crazy lady that's driving with the cat stickers on her car and, and <laughs> uh gotcha. she's very free now she's not afraid of all that judgment that used to be really it pulled her down and my dad is similar not as wild i would say but he's less he's really he still really resonates with jesus teachings but not necessarily with church anymore it's just like focused on the teachings of jesus specifically and the thing too though i think that's worth mentioning is like even when they were in their their more Christian state of things, it was they were always willing to give me the freedom to believe whatever I wanted. Even though they made me go to church, they always still allowed me to question things and, and still loved me regardless. And that to me was su- such a fundamentally important thing. So that's it, right? Love should never conquer over a belief or something, and or belief shouldn't conquer over love. So they always had that and now I'm you know, I'm very grateful for that. That's so amazing. Yeah, I I didn't grow up very religious. Having that freedom, I think, allows you to the freedom to be curious and not be afraid to to question even just yourself, even if you're not doing it publicly, you're not shutting down that inner voice within you. You're actually allowing yourself to explore, uh, which I think is important. So I think that's pretty cool. So I know you host a podcast as well, uh, Real Talk with Real People. I like the title. I think Mm -hmm. it's really neat. And one of your question is, what does spiritual mean to you? And I really like that. So I want to flip it to you and ask you, what does spiritual mean to you? Oh, man, I knew this would happen eventually. (laughs) The reason I I like that question is because one thing I've learned over these years is that early on, I had these ingrained ideas of what spiritual is supposed to look like. And it is like following the rules and uh, this, that, and the other. And, And now, to me, it's really truly about honoring yourself uh, be comfortable being yourself. Like, yeah, and like for for example, I feel and I know myself to be a spiritual, a deep spiritual practitioner. But if you look at me from the outside, you might not always know that. Like, I play Call of Duty, like we call it the Warzone game, and I I used to skateboard. I love guitar. I love like Jimi Hendrix and and all these amazing musicians and psychedelics. And I like, I just I don't know. I like exploring things. I like doing a lot of things that fundamentally people might not think of as being spiritual but to me it is it's like exploring being open-minded love all the all the various spiritual qualities to kindness compassion generosity all those beautiful things that's all in there as well self-mastery it's a lot of things <laughs> but but i think important too is is in a way it's just me being myself and not another good example is like cussing oh and i had this thing like oh you can't cuss because you're spiritual like i love just getting rid of those things and just uh, yeah just really being comfortable like how another way i put it is like how do i act or just around me, my closest friends like that to me is being spiritual because you're just being the most authentic you're not worried about, there's no fear of judgment no fear of oh what are they going to think of me 
on the Instagram or the Facebook or all these random people. And yeah. 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 I, I agree wholeheartedly. Just being yourself. I think with spirituality, it's such a tricky thing because the ego can lurk underneath the disguise of it not being. So I think it can be so tricky, especially when people then almost compare, oh, I'm more spiritual than you, or I oh, yeah. dress and act the part. And then it becomes a spiritual identity, which is that's defeats the whole purpose. So yeah, it's definitely a tricky one. On your awakening journey, did you find yourself falling into any of those? I call them spiritual traps, not to call them negative, because in my experience, it's part of the unfolding. And it's actually helped me in hindsight. But I'm curious if you had any of those experience that you can look back and say, wow, I totally, my ego was disguised or anything like that. Nope, I was just all of a sudden, perfect. Definitely. Especially the spiritual ego. It got me a bit. I was catching myself feeling superior because I'm like, oh, look at all these unconscious people. Or even, oh, look at the sheep and, and the I'm sheep, the shepherd. Right. There's all these little things like that. And, and, yeah. and so, so definitely I've caught those before. And I'm still catching. I'm still always on the lookout. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I've learned. You can't, even as you get more advanced, you can't put your guard down. You got to keep yourself in check. It's right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Or like one thing I would catch too is let's say, I don't know, I'm working in, in the kitchen and making food and some guy drives by with a Corvette and my mind is like, oh, you might be a millionaire and have all the money, but are you awakened? You're probably not awake. I'm awakened. You know? mm, <laughs> so the same. ego, like it, it Interesting. or that guy's really getting all the women or, or successful in one way or another. And then, so my, the ego would come in to, to, to like mm. repair itself by saying, you're not awakened. I'm awakened. <laughs> so definitely it's a constant thing to pay attention to. And one thing I would just to give as a bit of advice that's helped me a lot that came from Eckhart was really just watching for any sense of superiority or inferiority because those are always both sides are always ego and uh, that that really helps has helped me a lot to keep myself in check along with also defensiveness that's another good one right. to watch out for but the superiority thing yeah it's a constant thing to watch <laughs> so intelligence with... sorry to cut you off but i just no, remembered okay. another big one was intelligence i used to feel very superior because to be honest i am intelligent i recognize i might be more intelligent than everyday person, but not in the, but before it was like, I used to, I'd be very identified with that. And again, repair my sense of self because I was intelligent and I was, oh, he might be more popular or, or more money and stuff, but I'm probably smarter. It's that same repair mechanism. And so, yeah, that intelligence one was another one that really got me. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> So I have a have oh I have two questions for you. The first one is how do you recognize when you are in your ego and its superiority and infer, inferiority is the word and or when you are setting a boundary? Because mm. I feel that could be tricky. And I'm asking really for myself because I'm going through this right now. So this has turned into me asking for your guidance honestly. How do you know when you are just not facing your problems and in a way I don't even know if this would be ego, but it's your self-sabotaging and you're not, maybe perhaps not stepping into your power and you're like, well, I don't want to come across this way, so I'm just not going to say anything. And therefore, I'm thinking it's my ego. However, the other person is, now that I'm getting more feedback, it's the other person may have a spiritual ego and 
it's really my place to step up in my power and say, hey, I'm going to take this space and you're not going to overpower me. So how do you, or, or maybe I'm completely wrong. I don't know. So I would love your insights in that. When is it a boundary and when is it, no, this is my ego flaring up. How do you know how to balance that? That's a great question. It's, I think a lot of these, that type of balance is a masterful balance. It's an art form. It's not, it's not something you just master at <laughs> first try. It's, it's just constantly, okay. right? Just doing your best, bringing in awareness. That's the key, right? Be, just being self-aware. What emotions are coming in? what thoughts are coming up and just keeping that awareness alive. So that way you can keep bringing consciousness into that, whatever that play is that's going on in the mental world. And yeah, but finding that, that, that balance is an art. So I think, and that's something I often say to people I mentor is simply be gentle with yourself. There's no rush to find these masteries. <laughs> we just keep doing our best. And if you make a mistake, it's just a lesson. If you go too far on one side, or too far on the other. Like you mentioned earlier, these are just opportunities. It's not like a you need to beat yourself up. We're often our own worst critics. And when we're mm-hmm. afraid to make a mistake, we want to just get it right the first time. But mistakes are just beautiful lessons. And that's how you find mastery. It's not to be afraid to make mistakes mm-hmm. even. So that's I think that's a big part of it. The boundary thing though too, that's a whole subject. Of, you know, knowing when to put boundaries up. I think for me, often it just comes down to Rather than, I often don't call out someone's ego unless they invite it. If they ask me to, then I might just gently point at something that they might want to look at. But otherwise, if I notice something, I will usually just ask for space and, or it's a complicated thing. It's for one, two, the thing I'm always looking at is my own feelings of reactivity. And so even today, actually this happened today. I was in a clubhouse room and there was this certain speaker that was falling into guru go, guru mode. And mm-hmm. I just felt that there was this, some of the integration of what they were saying wasn't quite there. It was just more coming from concept, from mind. Intellectual. Yeah. And so it was missing the essence of, the, of it. And it was starting to disturb me because <laughs> I just feel like, oh gosh. And so I had to just, I just... I noticed that disturbance. Mm-hmm. I was breathing through it. I was like, okay, this is what life is, present moment is showing me this mm-hmm. right now. Okay. So mm-hmm. I was breathing through it. And then I decided I'm just going to remove myself and just leave the room and it'll be okay. And ironically though, one of the moderators then noticed and, and messaged me. And so then I got to share the reason why I left and it actually might help, help the situation, but it all came from me surrendering and then choosing to, to honor my practice. And so in that sense too, I think sometimes it's just us being judgmental. Sometimes it's us picking up on something that's on of somebody else. But I think fundamentally, it's always good to first put ourselves in check, for, you know, because it's every time we feel reactivity, the ego wants us to blame it on the other. Right. It's always the other. This is never me. And so in that sense, I think it, just always looking at the self first and is really important. I, I agree with you and that's exactly what I did. And the situation you described that you dealt with is, yeah, pretty much a mirror right now. Mm. My follow-up question for you would be, if you are in a position where you, because I know you said you were a kitchen manager, how did you handle yourself when you were in a position of, of authority or leadership? Mm. You can't always run away. Mm. So how do you establish yourself as, okay, this you just crossed the boundary, you just interrupted me, you cut me off, or you're taking over. 
How do you do that in a way where you maybe you do or you don't call out their ego? Is there a best practice or because that, that may happen also just in the workforce or if you're a spiritual coach or an entrepreneur, like I know I've had this situation with a, a client that I had, we were butting heads and I found that it was a huge learning experience for me because eventually we got to the bottom of it, but I wasn't clear on my boundaries. And so they thought they could overstep. And so once I became upset and, and almost resentful, it's, they weren't aware. So it just became like this thing. So I'm curious to hear your point of view. Another, another awesome that. question. You know, there's something funny too. I've really observed over these years how power and ego <laughs> really like to dance together. It's like this, even let's say Clubhouse, right? Because we met on Clubhouse. It's like you have the green button thing. It gives this little sense of power. And, and, and for whatever reason, ego, it like it likes that power, it likes that attention, and it tends to gravitate towards it. Or let's say a work environment, right? The manager tend to have ego trips just because it's like they gain this sense of self that feels superior because now they hold power over others. It, it even goes into parenting, like parent-child relationship. It's, in, it's really this power dynamic is, in, is all over the place in so many different levels. But the holding of power is something I've really always been fascinated by and really done a lot of work on with myself. Like One of the things I, I do is uh, moderate Eckhart's communities. And so I have this power right? Given to me, I have to decide who gets approved, whose posts get approved, and, and then also whose stuff gets deleted and whose comments get deleted. So I have to, sometimes I have to just be the enforcer to maintain the quality of the space. Wow. And that's, that's a big responsibility. Yeah. And it is, but I've really learned it. So it's another level of beautiful practice because it really makes you, you really got to be on your game. If you're representing Eckhart, you got to, you can't have ego reactivity and, and mm -hmm. accidentally cuss somebody out or even delete a, even delete a comment because you feel triggered. You really got to get into that introspection of it and saying, okay, is this everything I'm doing really coming from simply presence instead of emotional reactivity. And so it's great practice is what I've learned. It's really helped fine tune my own individual practice because when you're given that power. And so that's the way I see it. Like with any type you find yourself in a situation of power, it's really a value to not abuse it, to not allow the ego to sneak in even in a little trace to abuse that power. And so what I find fundamentally important is the simple practices that he offers of the inner body and the breath. And so whenever I do need to do something like delete a comment or call somebody out, let's say even if I was moderating a room, it's like an audio room. First, I would always, I always check in with my body because if somebody else's stuff is happening, it's going gonna, it's gonna to trigger some resistance in us. You feel this like tension, this anxiety start coming in. And that's the thing to address first. If you can address that and work through that first, noticing, okay, I'm resisting present moment because I'm resisting them. They are part of present moment. Whoever they are part of present moment, I'm resisting them. And then you can bring in acceptance first. Okay, this is happening. Maybe I need to do something. But first you just accept that it's happening. It, just, it can dissolve a lot of that, that like cringing or whatever it is, that feeling. And so then you get back into the stillness. And then from the stillness, you can confidently do whatever you need to do. And you can do it confidently because you're coming from stillness, because you feel the stillness. And so then even as you speak and you call out somebody or you change the subject or you do whatever you need to do, especially if you're in, the, in that place of power, it'll come from stillness. So the right words will come in. 
uh, and it will, you know, stillness has a, also has a level of like power to it, like authority. And it's funny too, because this room that I was in, I wasn't a moderator, so I didn't mm-hmm. really feel I had the place to challenge anything. So I just left. But I, I remember thinking to myself, if I had been, it would have, I would have reacted to it a lot differently, or I would have responded to it a lot differently. So that's where, again, it's like, we just make this our practice. If you find yourself in a place of power, then, you know, you've really got to put yourself in the mirror. Uh, to make sure the ego doesn't abuse it at all. because it And that inner body practice especially has been so helpful for really making sure that I am really am coming from a genuine place and not reactivity. Especially too, because in the Eckhart group, for example, you delete somebody's post, right? And then th- often they'll take it personally and then they'll get reactive and they'll respond back, why did you delete my post? And it's not fair that you're deleting stuff because of your own reactivity. And so I've got to be 100% sure that when I deleted it, I was in my body and I was feeling stillness. And then I can confidently respond back. Okay, I hear you. And you respond back however you need to respond back. But it's just, yeah, responding from stillness. (laughs) Fantastic answer. So helpful. I really appreciate you. Would you love to share how you eventually went from reading his book to now managing his communities? It's quite remarkable. It's a dream, honestly. Like it's weird. It's almost surreal because when I first read the book, I remember being having this ex- mind-blowing experience, and for a while I put him on this pedestal too, too, and working through that. But I think after it was five or six years into my into constant practice, I remember really having this desire for community. I needed more people that understood what I was understanding and what I was seeing with reality and with what awakening is and the importance of quieting the mind and all these things that a lot of people in my local environment, they thought was interesting, but they weren't really like into Mm -hmm. it like I was. So I remember having that desire for community. And then, I don't know, I think, I don't know what came first, but I think I created a little group on Facebook and uh, just attract some community. And then I found the Eckhart one and it had just started. And I was so excited getting in there, answering all these questions, getting involved, like finally people that are speaking my language. Right. <laughs> and eventually one of the moderators, or the only moderator, the guy who founded it, Brendan, who's a, a lovely practitioner and good friend now, he posts, he just put a post out saying, hey, I need a volunteer moderator to help with our Facebook group. I was, yes. And uh, so I messaged him. And you know, I think it was important to him too, though, that obviously that you need to be, you really do need to know your practice well to be in that kind of work so that way the ego doesn't sneak in different places and so we met and then we started started doing it and i realized it was a wonderful practice and so i did that for, doing that for three or three years i think maybe four years now and just recently it sounds true which is the company for eckhart had contacted me asking to help out with their membership website as well because now they have community on there so now i'm doing that one and it's just i feel so blessed to just have so many friends anchored in these practices now because it's it's amazing (laughs) that is amazing that's so cool very cool so i want to talk about one of the books that you recommended which you had a lot of powerful books on your website and one of the books that i saw on there is probably in my top three and that's the four agreements Oh, yeah. And I know he, he came out with a fifth agreement, which I want to share. And it's a be skeptical, but learn to listen, which mm. I really like that fifth agreement. And it's been a part of my life always. So I want to ask you, what would be your sixth agreement if you had to come up with one? Ooh, I hadn't heard that fifth one. I like the fifth one. I really like the other four too. I, mm-hmm. I really applied that a lot to my internal world. It clears out so much of the ego stuff when you apply those four. It's amazing. 
fifth one or sixth one. I think what I've been focusing on most lately and it's been very effective and also simple is this regularly inviting a check-in with myself and listening to how do I feel right now and what am I thinking right now? Mm. So I think that would be my sixth, so the sixth agreement is like agreeing to just regularly check in with myself in the present moment. How do I feel right now and what am I thinking right now? I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Okay. I think I may start asking every guest who uh, has read that book what their sixth agreement is, and that could just be a whole nother thing. That's a cool question. <laughs> That's really wise. I really like that. Okay. So I want to talk about, you do one-on-one -on -one mentoring and you are a presence mentor. So it's a two-part question. One, what is a presence mentor? And two, I saw that you offer one-on-one -on -one mentoring through VR, which just sounds mm. really dope. I've had that experience <laughs> one time and it was through a boxing VR and it honestly, it scared me. It was creepy <laughs> to me. So I would love to hear how that works in being a presence mentor. Yeah, definitely. So the presence mentoring is just that it's helping individuals learn, excuse my dogs, uh, okay. but helping individuals, you know, learn how to just bring presence into their daily life, right? This like awakening, right? When we have an awakening, it's like we're waking up into presence. And then from what I experienced was I, I had this taste, but then it required so much work of, of constantly remembering, come back to the practice and doing the healing and working through my pain bodies and the ego. And there's just such a vast range of things to do to integrate awakening into not just something that happened years ago, but am I awake right now? And that to me is like, is presence and it's in, really living in it just constantly. So that's what I do is I help individuals. Usually I I'm usually tend to like work more with people who've already had an awakening and who are focused on integrating. I'll happily work with anyone who uh, is interested, but generally it's usually more for someone who's already had an awakening that just wants to continue expanding into that. And so I normally, most of the time I do that in V or not in VR, I actually do most of it on Zoom, which I love because it's like you have this global reach and I work with people from so many different countries. It's just it's so amazing to me that it's a global thing. But I did actually just start offering mentoring on virtual reality because I that's one of the projects I do is I work with a nonprofit called Evolver where we offer, the, our main gig is to offer free meditations to the public, but we do lots of other really cool stuff, retreats. I'm actually going to be guiding a, a four-week workshop starting this Saturday. And we just started this mentoring program as well. But yeah, basically it's like we they put on this headset I don't have it next to me, but you put on the headset and you're in the VR reality. And mm -hmm. it, it really is interesting because it offers a different like layer, even with practicing presence or with giving presence to each other. Like when we meditate together, like one of the meditation spaces is in space. We have this awesome, we have this awesome builder who builds all of our worlds for us named Alan, but he built this one where like you're in outer space and the earth is in front of you. And it, it comes from this idea called the overview effect, where astronauts have this like amazing spiritual experience because they're seeing this, the entire planet, all of human history right in front of them. Magical yeah. experience. Oh. So Jeremy, the founder, loved that and wanted to help recreate that in VR. So he had this universe thing built. 
And so we meditate. We're floating in space, and the Earth is there in like relative to size, giant. And we're meditating together, and it's just it's amazing. You can with VR too. You can play with all the different worlds. So the other one I medit we meditate in uh, that I guide is a replica of a place in India that Jeremy uh, used to visit regularly. And but when you're there, it's like there's spatial, there's relative spatialness and audio. So you really you see each person's avatar in a way that like they're really in the same space. And when you meditate together, it feels just if you're meditating at a studio or something. You this know? is incredible. Yeah, it, it really so is. Cool. And you're spread out globally, which is amazing too, because not only do you yeah. really feel like you're sharing the same moment, there's somebody from the UK and somebody in Australia and somebody and I'm guiding it in the East Coast. So yeah, it's really cool. Just VR in general, I'm a big advocate for now. But then on top of that, we are offering mentoring in VR. So we get together one-on-one, -on -one, have chats, and we can explore different worlds or whatever while we're talking. <laughs> that is so neat. Okay, so that's going to go on my list of things that I want to get is a VR setup. <laughs> mm, nice. Very cool. Um, so I know you also host a a Q and a death Q&A, which I think is uh, pretty interesting. I've never even heard of this. So I would love to know what your thoughts are around death and if you're scared of death. Yeah, I love that death Q&A. We meet every Tuesday in VR. My friend Tom, who's actually the father of Jeremy, started it and he's a lot of his life has been revolved around exploring death and and in a compassionate way through hospice and through different things, understanding it. And I, I love this meeting because it the topic of death just bring it opens up so much. In, in every week it's a different conversation, ranging from like the personal emotional pain of losing somebody close to us, the real heaviness there, but then also the philosophical things. Because when you really bring in the topic of death, suddenly religions and spirituality looks a lot more interesting. My friend Tom says, there are no atheists in the foxhole, which is, I guess it's a saying, death is coming. It's you suddenly are much more willing to consider. And death. so I love the topic. And it's, I personally know, I am actually, I am not afraid of death. And I do think that is something that comes with going deeper into our awakening is, is recognizing, not even conceptually, right? Because this is the interesting thing. Like I could say that, I don't fear death and maybe be completely in denial, actually. But where I know this, I'm confident that this is true, is that you know, having this, this present awareness in my body, and whenever I'm talking about death or really exploring it, meditating on it, there's no fear coming in. There's no angst. There's no anxiety. There's no stress. There's, no, there's none of that like clinging that comes in with fear. So yeah, I, I don't fear death. However, I do, of course, I will grieve. I respect death. I don't pretend like I'm immortal. In this physical body is certainly impermanent. So it's more like I've accepted death. I accept that it's going to happen. I don't know when, but it, my physical body, it will happen. But I think part of the understanding that helps me not feel fear is that I really deeply recognize that I am more than my body, which is right. another definition of spiritual. Like I know that I am spirit. Yeah, in a way, mm. basically it's like, the spirit is timeless. Yeah. I didn't, that sort of moving beyond the fear of death didn't come as when I first had the awakening in 2012. It was, I think that came with the integration process of really digging through all the pain bodies and the ego stuff that that fear of death eventually dissolved quite a bit. Wow. And how soon into your awakening journey did you recognize you wanted to teach this to others and mentor mm. others because that seems to be such a natural evolution that I keep seeing. So I'd love to hear that. That's a funny one. I 
I immediately wanted to start teaching, like a month in. Wow. <laughs> but I was not ready. And the universe knew this, and that's, I'm sure, why it didn't take off. <laughs> but like, I have a YouTube channel, actually, that I have videos. The first video I made, I think, was in 2013. So it was about a year after my awakening. Wow. Okay, yeah, and they're still on there. I left them on there. You know, <laughs> if you if you search for it, you can find it. I think it's in my archive Progress. folder. Oh, it's painful for me to watch though, but I left them anyway because I think it's fun. And but yeah, I did have this. I there was a part of me that I think knew I was supposed to help be a guide to help share these things. I just I didn't. I felt like I won this lottery. It wasn't being a teacher. It was more like sharing this giant thing of gold and treasure that was just given to me. And that nobody seemed to see. So it was, it was coming from a good place. But I, I, re, I obviously see now, years later, that especially in those first five years, I had a lot of work to do. I wasn't ready to, to guide anyone because I hadn't found any mastery within myself. I, had, I still had the spiritual ego, for example, right? That's, it's one that you work through for probably for many of us. For, for myself, it took quite a few years to work through that one. So yeah, and but I just kept going. I just kept pushing and making content and most importantly, focusing on my practice, taking everything in as practice, no matter where I was, building fences for Lowe's or, or driving for Uber. I drove for Uber for two years and Lyft. Anything I could do is, okay, first practice is practice. Practice is most important. But then I started making content and I did start putting myself out there to be of service and just to say, hey, I'm here for you if you need help. And also another thing that came in that probably would be valuable for some that are where some people are at right now too, is if you feel pulled to teach, I know for myself, there was, and even still, that there's this very slow traction process that occurs when we have this desire to be a teacher. I didn't, and I still am not famous. <laughs> I think I have 130 something subscribers on YouTube it's, and not very many followers here, there, or wherever. And, uh, and one of the philosophies that I've held onto though is, is that it's really about quality over quantity. And that's what I made my focus was like, it's not about becoming popular or getting as many views as I can on my X, Y, and Z. But the people that do come to me, do they really experience something helpful that they can then carry on into their life? And so with that, it was really just the philosophy of if I can help one person deeply, that's beautiful. That's one person I wouldn't have helped if I didn't keep trying. So that's been my philosophy. And now things are actually finally starting to, to move. And your last couple of years even is starting to move, but especially like the last few months, really starting to move. I think Clubhouse is one of those pieces. But yeah, it's been a slow and steady process. And I think part of it too, though, is if you do have, a, have this pool to be a teacher, there's also a certain, you got to burn off all the bits of ego. Because once you are recognized as a teacher and people are coming to you in large mm -hmm. amounts for wisdom and advice and they're giving you money and giving you attention and all this stuff you know, if you have any traces of ego that stuff is going to get it's it's going to get pulled out and it's going to end up crashing and you do see spiritual teachers that crash because they have little bits of ego they didn't work through before they got popular mm -hmm. so that's partly why i feel comfortable and confident that everything is in its own right timing and it doesn't even matter how long it takes it's just that i'm going to keep practicing keep deepening and when it does happen, it'll just mean that I'm ready. And in the meantime, I've already, I know I've helped quite a few people. And I'm really grateful uh, to be able to have been of help to them. You can add me to the list. <laughs> what you just said was quite profound, actually. Wow. Uh, wow, that just really struck me. Sorry. I just need a moment. That was like really powerful. Because I feel like where I'm at in my own journey, 
there's a little bit of a feeling of other people around me saying that you're, oh, you're a natural leader, you build communities. And I've, I have a track record of, of building communities and being able to attract a crowd and people very quickly. And I've gone through a lot of things very quickly and my own awake, awakening journey has unfolded quite quickly over the past two years. And a lot of the phases I've gone through, some people have been through that phase. It took them to get go through it like years. Like I went through a conspiracy theory phase, mm. but it lasted maybe six months. But I went so hardcore and then I had this breathwork class and I, all of a sudden, all I felt was love and I, I couldn't watch violent movies anymore and I became more sensitive and it was just everything changed in my life. So just things have happened so rapidly that I feel this weird pressure of, okay, what's the next, what's next? And a little bit of this urge of, I want to, should I become a teacher? Should I share this? How do I do that? And I'm thinking in the future and I'm not as present as I was just a few weeks ago, mm. even with the clubhouse that we met in. So just hearing you say that, it was just like, it just brought me back, mm -hmm. just brought me back. And hey, it's cool. Everything will happen in its own due time. There's no need to rush. And I've been feeling these past few days. So just hearing that from you was just like really refreshing. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So... With that being said, uh, I actually have a follow-up question around that. Since you are doing this full-time, how do you feel about spirituality and it being monetized? Are there any tips you have for those that are perhaps new to that world and are stepping into their power and charging for their time? Any do's and don'ts that you've experienced? or? Oh, yeah. that's a, there's a whole big topic there. Yeah, the money topic. This is when I have gone all over the place about myself and had many conversations over trying to find the right combination for, I don't know how many years now I've doing the mentoring and stuff for most of the time I've been doing it for free. And even up until 2020, I was starting to do like mass amounts of content. And I just decided at first I was going to do an online course, but then I was like, I'm just going to do, I'm going to do an online course but I'm gonna do it with a free model by combining YouTube and Facebook groups so that I can really help people and then just simply open it up for donation. So then I created like all these different ways for people to donate. And my, my point was I had this feeling like, okay, once they uh, experience the, the, what I'm offering, uh, then they'll, want, they'll see the value and they'll pay the value. And it worked and it didn't. Okay. It, I got 50% of what I needed to, to be fully automated. And that includes all my other projects and stuff too. So it worked. And I had lots of friends like saying, oh, I, I know people charging three, four, $500 doing the same thing you're doing and you're doing it for a donation. Like you should just pick a number and, and charge. But to me, part of the thing is just, I grew up with fairly low income in my family. And so I just, I, I get how money is a pain body, uh, is a deep pain body for many people. And so to be compassionate to that, I just was really trying to avoid saying you have to pay this in order for me to give you that. But I've learned some other lessons along this too. Like for one, there's perceived value, which is this illusion that I, it drives me nuts, but it, it is a thing. So even now I charge 50 bucks for an hour session, which is very minimal. And yet, yeah, it's like somebody says, sees that and they're not impressed. And so then they don't even bother or 50 bucks or even when it was free. Oh, it's free. It's just that perceived value thing drives me crazy. 
mm-hmm. uh, because there isn't always a correlation. There are people I know that charge huge amounts of money and they're not deeply in the practice. And no judgment, but it's just there isn't always correlation, especially on these deep spiritual levels. But so that's been a thing. The other side of that, though, is there is value to these things. They are, they're invaluable even. So if you are charging a lot of money, okay, I don't, I'm not going to judge that. That's working for you. Not to mention if it's paying your bills, that's good because in this whole time that I've been for the years I did it for free and then the years that I've did it for donation, it's been a struggle for me financially. That's why I was driving for Uber and doing all this side work to pay for everything, to keep up my bills while I offered all this stuff for free. And so it was a lot of sacrifice. And at the end of the day, it's not very practical. So it's a tricky combination. I think just honoring your own path, do what feels right to you, maybe even getting outside of the idea of what's right and wrong. Just because I did it that way doesn't mean you have to. Do it the way that feels right for you. And now I'm at a point where I like the idea of charging a minimal amount to sign up for something because there is also something about when you ask for money it and Eckhart points this out that it, it kind of fuels somebody's willingness to take it seriously you know if they're paying three hundred dollars for something they're taking it more seriously if you give it to them for free they might or might not show up because it's, it's just there's something about that psychology with it so there's that to consider as well and that's something i've been frustrated with at some points because i am giving this stuff for free and it's incredibly valuable and it's not really being taken seriously by many people. The ones who are slowing down enough to listen really appreciate it, but not many are willing to slow down, especially the numbers game. Oh, he has 130 subscribers. He must not know what he's talking about. All oh, that BS. So there's all kinds of different layers in there. And yeah, but now, so I'm playing with a new model now where I charge a minimal amount, like this workshop I'm doing in VR. I'm charging $20 for the full four weeks per person. And then at the end, I'll just say, hey, look, I'm aware that this is worth a lot more than 20 bucks. If, if you are able, feel free to donate. And it's appreciated, but there's no, by no means is it necessary. And kind of playing with these ideas, I'm still playing with it. I haven't quite figured it out yet. But I know for me personally, charging a large amount just doesn't feel right. Honestly, I would pay way more than $20. I'm the easiest sale. If you, have a, if you are genuine and I love what you're selling, I'm probably going to buy it. The thing about that, though, is I think part of what I'm here to do is challenge all systems. Just because a system is is happening doesn't mean I have to play the game. I've always been that way to just (laughs) flick off the game and cry about being poor at the same time. (laughs) But I don't know, you know, because the thing to me where I've always, because I've thought about that, and I've also thought about I could charge high price and offer scholarship to to make sure I meet to those people. That's certainly a possibility. But the other side of it that I'm considering and why I don't do that is because I understand the psychology of somebody with little to no money. And when there's a price tag that's scary, it's like they just immediately shut down and they don't even consider it. It's the opposite of the same as to someone who can't afford $200 will be turned off by the 20. Somebody who can't afford $10 will be turned off by the 200 so quickly. Yeah, and so to me, it's okay. I will just, and I even with the 20, I'm doing the $20 and I'm still offering scholarship because I know there are people that they might even have $20, but they cringe at the idea of spending any money on anything because it's just deeply ingrained. There's a huge collective pain body with money, especially if you've grown up struggling with it your whole life. So that's where it's coming from. It's just the compassion of honoring that. Finding, but the, the reality <laughs> is that I've also been fortunate that my girlfriend partner has been supporting me in the where the bills aren't 
being met because of my hard-headedness with charging. So super grateful to her. I think what you're doing is awesome. And it's a valid point. I think it ultimately boils down to who is your target audience or who are you meant to help? Who resonates with your message? I guess what I, how I feel about it is as long as it's not, not in alignment with who you are, but it's also realistic to you. So for example, if it's, you're charging too little and you're in, it's like, it's not worth it in a sense where your expenses are too much. I don't know. I guess for me, my personality type, I wouldn't want it to become a burden or become resentful. So that's my only thing. What you said, I'm still saying I'm, I'm broke or I'm poor. I wouldn't want to <laughs> fall into that. It's like, okay, well then let me just be happy with living below my means or so. Yeah. So that's the only thing to consider. So yeah, but I, I totally hear you. And I think what you're doing is awesome. And I definitely would love to hear more about the VR set. I may get one and join you in that. So I think that's cool. really cool. Okay, so I have a couple more questions. I know we're about to hit the hour mark. And last three questions. What is your favorite quote? And why? Oh, man. <laughs> so many. I know. Of course, it's going to be an Eckhart one. Which Eckhart one? One of the one of these quotes that has gotten me through so many different things is he says, uh, try to get the right, the wording. Life will give you whatever experience is most helpful for the evolution of your consciousness. How do you know this is because this is happening? Oh yeah. That one I've, I come to often, right? Because when any resistance comes in, it's just that it's that not trusting. Oh, life mm. is bringing me this. This is supposed to happen because it is happening. And not only that, but that everything is everything like relationships challenges the money stuff the whatever the the difficult person in the room the moderating question earlier the work the the ego boss the just everything is actually all for our evolution of our consciousness uh, it gives it all purpose it's yeah wow when you put it like that <laughs> you might as well just be here now i so agree what is your morning Ooh. I felt that. What is your morning uh, routine or ritual if you have one? How do you get yourself ready for the day? Funny thing, for most of these years, I have had little to no routine <laughs> of discipline, especially in the mornings. I'm not a morning person. I'm more of a night person. The one thing that's always been consistent is the making of coffee. <laughs> Waking up, going to the coffee. Like in, the, in Buddhism, they have this practice of making the tea. It's like a tea mm -hmm. ceremony. It's a meditation. And I, I do this with the, with making coffee, like uh, just enjoying each part and not being in a rush and things like that. But just this week, actually, a friend invited me to do a seven day retreat with with them. Oh, wait, aren't you you're yes. with us? Yes, yeah. Yes. Oh, what a I have coincidence! Not, I have not been there the last two days because I was up on Clubhouse too late, but I will resume tomorrow. <laughs> I missed Sunday because I was up too late on Clubhouse. <laughs> but that's funny. But this, so this retreat has actually brought in some really nice, sorry, doggies. It's okay. All good. This retreat has really shown me though, the beauty of waking up early and sitting and listening to Dharma talk for an hour and meditating for an hour to start the day. It's, it's been really lovely. So I think I'm going to stick with this and probably just change up the talks with different teachers and then do the hour of meditation though. I mean, it's, an hour is a lot. Like if some for somebody that's new to practice, I certainly wouldn't recommend an hour. Just five minutes a day is wonderful. But I do really, I really enjoy that hour of silence of just sitting and being. Before this, though, my a lot of my practice is is really just about 
the routine of it is just about like continuously giving myself reminders to come back to my breath and back into the body and just doing that as much as I can throughout the day, wherever I am. That's where it's like bringing it back into wherever I am is the practice. Although to be fair, there was also time, there was a time when I had to wake, you know, I had this awakening that I convinced myself that I didn't need to do seated meditation because I was always meditating. And it was true and not true because it's, yeah, it's like the thing about blind spots. Blind spots are just so naturally, they're so hard to see. And that's what the seated meditation is valuable for is that you're really sitting and listening to the mind going or the emotions going and it mm -hmm. helps prevent blind spots. So I, I do really recommend seated meditation. Of course, now I'm guiding meditations too. So I'm meditating a lot throughout the day. Beautiful. Before we wrap up this episode, I would love for you to just let everybody know how they can get in touch with you and how they can best support you in all that you're doing. Well, easiest way is uh, my website, presenceprojects.com. And all my most of my projects are on there. There's actually one or two that I haven't even added on there yet. But anything that interested you, you want to check out, want more info on, yeah, go to the website. If you appreciate what I do and would like to donate, that's cool too. It's all on there. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> and so we end every episode with your words of wisdom, just some advice that has helped you along your path of life thus far. I think breathing right now, just enjoying my breath, as, as simple as it is, just being willing to step out of whatever I'm thinking about, go back into the breath. I appreciate you. I think we can end it right there. That's perfect. <laughs> We'll talk soon. I appreciate you, Ryan. Thank you so much for listening. I would love to hear your feedback and thoughts on the show, as well as any topics you would like for me to cover on solo episodes. Please just book a time with me using calendly.com slash vibequeen slash let's vibe, and we can hop on a phone call. I can get to know you and connect directly. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time.